Wow. I feel like I want to say something about Thanksgiving and I want to say some other things, but right now I don't want to do any of that. Um, I just want to say thank you uh, to the Lord for giving us that sweet time of worship and I believe preparing our hearts for what he has to tell us today. Uh, I would like to invite you to take your Bibles with me. Join me this morning in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 uh, page 807 in those little black Bibles in front of you in the chair beneath. Uh, we are doing a series simply called Facets of Jesus. And uh, the goal is so simple and yet so profound. The goal is to hold up the biblical Jesus as God has revealed him to us. And to look at him from different angles and to see the brilliance of his glory shine off each of the facets of his character and his name, his titles, so that we can gain a better appreciation of who he is. And my prayer has been that we would fall deeper in love with the person of the Son, and even the Father together. I said that last week or the week before, I don't remember, but I think it's worth re-saying, and it's simply this, God doesn't want your money. He just doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mind. He owns all the universe. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your song because he's got inquire, uh, entire choirs of angels praising him every moment of every day for all eternity. He doesn't need our song. And he doesn't even need our service. What he wants from us is our affections. He wants our hearts. Because if he has our hearts, he gets all the rest to boot and for the right reasons. Not works righteousness, but out of a heart of expressing love to the one who loved us so. And so that's really been the goal of this as we looked at Jesus as the Logos, as we've looked at Jesus last week as the Christ, the Messiah of God. And today, it has been especially my prayer this week that we would behold Jesus and the Father today in a very special way, as we consider this facet of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, uh, this will seem terribly familiar, uh, especially as we encroach upon this Christmas season, because these are the words that the angel gave concerning this person called Jesus. Notice with me, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 21, it says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame because, because he thought she had been unfaithful, he simply resolved to divorce her quietly. But... As he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid to marry Mary. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name what? You will call his name Jesus. Now, the word we get 
for Jesus actually comes to us in the English from the Greek word Iesus, kind of filtered down a little bit through the Latin, and it comes to us as Jesus. But the Hebrew name, which Jesus would have gone by in, in that time frame, the Hebrew name that Jesus would have been known for was the name Yeshua. Yeshua is Hebrew for, for his name. Now, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeshua, Yeshua, Joshua, Joshua, Joshua. So yes, the name Jesus actually was given was basically the name Joshua, which means Yeshua, Yah, being the name of God, God, uh, Shua. Yeshua saves. The name Jesus, Yeshua, means God saves. That's his name. In fact, his name is what he came to do. It says, for he will save his people from their sins. So his name is the Savior. Jesus means the Savior. Now, let me ask you a question. Where did he get the name? Where did he get this name? Did Mary and Joseph give him the name? No, no. Uh, they probably could have called him Fred or something. I don't know. But they didn't give him the name uh, Jesus or Yeshua. Uh, how about the angel? Did the angel give him the name? No, no. Because the word angel actually means messenger. Angels are only the messengers of God. So they simply do God's bidding. They don't actually really do anything out of their own volition per se. So what the angel did was bring the name for this baby and that name came from God the Father. God the Father named him his son the Savior. Over the next few minutes while we're together, I want to do something a little different. A little different. You say, Pastor Bill, you say that every single week. So to do it different really doesn't mean different, it just means normally. Okay, we're going to do something normal. We're going to do something different. As we think of Jesus as Savior... We think of an image like this. We think of Jesus on the cross where he died for our sins. Amen? So we have this, this picture, uh, thanks to Mel Gibson in The Passion of the Christ, of Jesus, the Savior. And rightfully so, he is the Savior. And when we repent of our sin and ourself and turn and embrace him with our lives, the Bible says this. We will receive forgiveness of all our sins. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. That's this image. That's what it conjures up. Forgiveness of sins. But not just the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says that we have redemption, which means we have been bought back from the slave market of sin, and we have been released by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said? Awesome. And we're also, in this image, what Christ accomplished on our behalf was not just forgiveness and redemption, which would put us in a neutral position before God, but rather we have been given the positive righteousness and life of Christ applied to us. And all God's people said? So when we think of Savior, we normally think of the benefits that come to us. We think, he's saved me. I've got salvation. I've got forgiveness. I've got redemption. I've got his righteousness. And that's all right and good and praise God. But today, <clears throat> I want to look at the cross, not merely from the standpoint of the benefits that are given to us, but I want to look at the cross from God's position. 
I want us to see the cross as God desires us to see the cross. In the way God wants us to see the cross is to see his overt love for us. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 9, these words, in this is the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So today, we're going to look at Jesus as the Savior of God, sent by God the Father for us. And in so doing, I really, really want us to see the love of Jesus for the Father that would cause him to want to offer his life to be our Savior. And then I want to see the love of the Father that he has for us that actually led him to offer up his son, his one and only son, for us. So this morning, I want us to focus on the other side of the cross, the perspective of God, and I want us to see the love of God as it plays out for us. Somebody said this, our capacity to love God is related to our understanding and our image of God in our minds. We do well to pray for the grace of a growing vision of the glory of his love. I want to do that right now. I want to ask God for the gift of understanding and seeing the love of God for us. Because I'm convinced that if we can really lay hold of that, it would be transformative not just in our lives, but it would be transformative for everyone around us as we lay hold of the beauty of the love of God. Bow your heads with me. Let's just take a minute. Uh, turn to a gracious, merciful, loving Father. Father, we've already asked you in song to please manifest yourself among us, to take us deeper and deeper into your love that we would really understand what you have done for us. Father, would you take these next few moments through the revelation of your word and open our understanding and our hearts to infinite love. And may it have its full impact, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to admit up front that I'm going to be going into territory that is, that is very hard to, to lay hold of. Uh, I'm going to take us, if you will, into the very heart of the Trinity. I'm going to take us into the heart of God. And what I want to do in the next few moments is to approach the unapproachable glory of the Godhead. And I want to consider the deliberations of the, of the Trinity in eternity past. And i got to admit to you right now that apart from the revelation of God given to us, we could not know. So revelation is what the scriptures are. Revelation is God telling us that which we could not know unless he told us. And so we're actually going to go back before creation. And we're going to peer into the Godhead, and we're going to hear the deliberations of God prior to creation. And then we're going to play out how it actually executed in time. And I just want to say again, um, yay, yay, yay. 
who am I to, to try and lay this out there? Who are you to really grasp this? We, we, are, we are feeble and frail at best. Uh, I like what a man by the name of um, John Wesley said. John Wesley, uh, the founder of the Wesley movement, the Methodist movement, said this. He said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man who can comprehend the triune God. Actually, I want to take it a little further than that. He's inaccurate in what he said. You see, it would actually be easier for a worm to comprehend a man than it is for a man to comprehend God. Because a worm, like a man, is a created thing. And so we actually have a closer relationship to a worm than we will ever have with the uncreated eternal being called God. So again, apart from the fact that God has said this, we don't know. So my goal over the next few moments is to take us into this place in eternity past in the Godhead to see what the deliberations were. And my goal is to pull all of this out of Scripture to make it clear uh, as to what God uh, was thinking and what God actually did. Uh, There's a wonderful man of God by the name of Dallas, um, Dallas Willard who kind of summarized the beauty of this thing called the Godhead. He said, God is an interlocking community of magnificent persons. I like that. Let me say that one more time. God is an interlocking community of magnificent persons, completely self-sufficing, sufficing. Not just self-sufficient, but self-sufficing. In other words, they meet one another's needs. There's this beautiful thing going on inside the Trinity itself that makes it a complete community of unity that is represented as God. And he goes, and it has no meaningful limits in goodness, power, and love. So the Trinity, uh, uh, something that goes way beyond our ability to even comprehend, God who stands outside of time and possibly other dimensions, gives us a little picture into who he is. And the best we can do is say, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, those three are one God. That's all we know from Scripture. So we have to draw those conclusions. And so within this community of magnificent persons, I like that, we have this gorgeous Unity that plays out in pure love. The Bible says this of God. God is what? God is what? That's it. Not that God has love, but that God is love. God is love. God is the source of love. God is the fountainhead of love. Love originated in the Trinity, in this community, in unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, interrelating with one another. This is where love originated. And in the beauty of the purity of this love, it plays out so gorgeous. Now, I want to take a moment and do something. I I kind of want to focus on the beauty of the love of God the Father and God the Son and God the Son for God the Father. A man by the name of John Piper gave us this expression of the uniqueness of that relationship within the Godhead. He said this, And what a love that is. There is no greater love in all the universe than the love that flows between the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity. No love is more powerful, more intense, more continuous, more pure, more full of delight in the beloved than the love God the Father has for the Son. It is the energy of joy that makes atom bombs look like firecrackers. 
Oh, how the Father delights in the Son, and oh, how precious the Son is to the Father. And so we see the beauty of this perfect community. And it was within the beauty of this perfect community, God who is love, chose through no compulsion to create humanity, us, to express this overflowing love of the Trinity upon us. So God chose to create people to share the incredible beauty of his love. Now again, not of necessity, because God is perfect and complete in and of himself. But God willingly chose to create people upon which to express his love. Let me say this one more time, just so I'm not misunderstood. God does not need us. God does not need us. He is fully complete in and of himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the eternal Trinity is completely sufficing one another. He don't need us. We can add nothing to God. We can take nothing from God. God is completely self-sufficient. And God, out of no compulsion, according to his own free will, chose to create us. And here we are today. God willed it. God desired it. And the truth is this, prior to, creation, prior to the creation of the world, God knowing the beginning from the end in his omniscience knew that we, humanity, his creation, would rebel against him, our creator, the very source of love and perfect and pure love. He knew that our rebellion would create an eternal offense against the greatest being in the universe because God is not only love, but God is perfectly holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit, the three in one. Holy, holy, holy. Now the word holiness doesn't simply mean complete purity without any kind of tainting. It does mean that, but it means much more than that. Holiness has the idea of something that is completely other than everything else. God is unique to everything. Again, it's easier for a worm to know a man than a man to know God because God is completely other than us. We have no category in which to understand him apart from that which he reveals to us because he is holy, uniquely different, perfect, and pure. Because of this holiness and because of this love, In eternity past, the Godhead devised and settled the issue of salvation. In eternity past, even before creation happened, God, the Godhead, had already firmly designed redemption's plan and had already settled the issue completely when it comes to the issue of salvation. Let me explain. Scripture, 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 here we go. God the Father determined that God the Son was to be the Savior of the world. John, 1 John 4, 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be, what? 
So, with this reality that God is holy, that we are not, that ultimately being offending a perfectly thrice holy being would lead to an eternal uh, punishment, the love of God reached out to God the Son and said, Son, I want you to be the Savior for the people we will create. And the Son, looking back in great love for the Father, Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, love means I will do anything. And so the son, in, in, in the desire of the father, said yes. And in eternity past, even before creation happened, the very names of those whom Jesus would rescue were actually recorded before the, before the world was created. This comes from Revelation 13.8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. That's in context. Everyone whose name has not been written, notice, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. When were people's names written in the book of life? Yeah, yeah. So the son had, had been told, you're going to be the Savior. All right. God says, okay, now we're going to record those who are going to be ours. You say, well, how would God know? Because God chose us. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice that. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The purpose of his will. The purpose of his will. So he chose us. And all God's people said, a lot of us really struggle with that one. That doesn't seem fair. What do you mean? Like he chose people, recorded their names even before he created? How is that fair? Well, let me ask you this. Do you really want what's fair? Do you really want what you deserve? Then we deserve eternal separation from God. That God would devise a plan called redemption, that he would save some to be his children. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, that some at least have the possibility of being saved. So election is a wonderful truth that the scriptures talk about of God's selection of those that are his. I can't help it, it's what the scriptures say. Don't get mad at me. We're Americans, we really struggle with this whole concept of election. But you go into other parts of Europe, Africa, you go into the Middle East, they're all good with it. God's sovereign, he can do what he wants. But in America, we're like, nah, God's going to vote. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. So, he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth. I just want you to notice that all of this had been fully devised and fully settled even prior to creation. In fact, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? So we're still prior to creation here. We're still prior to creation here. Because God had selected the Son, and the Son said yes to be the Savior. Their names were recorded. God had elected or selected them. He, he has called us out even before the ages began so that he can say someday to those who are his own these words, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from what? Okay, so we have just slipped in to the Trinity in eternity past, and we have taken a look at what God's 
mind was concerning this thing called salvation. And we have seen incredible love. Such love that it would actually cause the Son to be willing to be the Savior out of His love for the Father. And all the rest of this has played out accordingly. So, God's plan of salvation is an eternal plan. One fully devised in eternity past, but that would actually be worked out in time. Which brings us to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now remember, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfect trinity in love and in holiness, absolute purity, uniqueness, it's, it's amazing. Now, the Son takes upon himself the role of the Savior. And it all happened according to God's plan. But when the fullness of time had come, this is according to God's redemptive plan, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. So here comes the son. Here comes the son. But what I want you to know is even though Jesus Christ uh, willingly placed himself into humanity through this thing called the incarnation, his relationship with the father was just as solid and beautiful and loving as ever. Just because they weren't in this, this thing called the Trinitarian Union with a circle around it, like I have an image there, which doesn't do it any justice, by the way. He was still walking every day with the Father. The beauty of their relationship was going forward. The love of the Son and the love of the Father was continually being expressed throughout the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of my favorite verses found in John says this. Jesus said, and he who sent me, referring to the Father, is what? We've never parted. We've never parted. Even though Jesus took upon himself flesh and became part of humanity, the relationship between father and son was still very much solid. In fact, he has not left me alone. And I always do those things that are pleasing to him. So I want you to notice the love relationship continues in a very beautiful and deep and abiding way between God the Father and God the Son. Even though the Son has taken upon himself humanity, the relationship with the Father and the Son continues to go forward in beauty. In fact, everywhere Jesus went, his goal was to exalt his Father. Uh, we're told that when Jesus was teaching, one of the things he said is this, I want to teach you to pray. Um, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in, 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 in heaven. And so we see Jesus uh, teaching beautifully the truths of who his Father is and living out those truths before people. We see him as he goes about his healing ministry. He shows great compassion on the people. And what he's revealing to us is the compassion that God has through him. And so we see him continuing to show the love relationship. And even as he would touch sinners and, and forgive them of their sin and, and show the beauty of all of that, everything Jesus did manifested the beauty of his Father in his life. Because the Son loved the Father and the Father loved the Son. And this was such an incredible um, uh, relationship that nothing, nothing could part it. And in fact, Jesus goes on to say this to Philip. Hey, Philip, Really? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the who? 
He lived in such a closeness of relationship with the Father. In the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, unique love relationship. Jesus becomes the Savior, enters into humanity, and he walks on this earth, and everything he did was in the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father, because he and the Father were one. They loved each other. He enjoyed that relationship even in the flesh. I'm emphasizing the love of the Father and the love of the Son because you can't understand the love of God for you without understanding this next part. Jesus, closing in on the cross, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pours out his heart before his Father in anguish. And he says these words, Father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, the cup of suffering. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Because he loved the Father. Nothing was too great to give up for the sake of the love of the Father. This is the beauty of this relationship. You know, we often sing, and rightfully so, of the love of God for us, the love of Jesus for us, but I really want you to understand the, the role Jesus plays as Savior not, is not overtly because of his love for us, it was because of his love for his Father. And it was the Father that asked the Son to be the Savior of the world. So this is the beauty of that relationship. And he goes on to say this, and there appeared before him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, for most of us, what we're thinking is Jesus was just about on the cusp of being betrayed, and then he was going to be scourged, and then he was going to be spit upon, then he was going to be beaten, and then he was going to have this crown of thorns, he was going to be mocked, and all of this, Jesus is wrestling, oh God, don't let this physical suffering come my way. Don't let me go through this. I don't want to experience this. I don't really want to go through this pain, but that's not what he's talking about. That's not what Jesus was concerned about in praying to his father. I don't know how this works. I don't understand this at all. But all I know is this. The eternal love relationship between God the Father and God the Son was about to be breached. How does that happen, Pastor Bill? I have no idea. How does the eternal God suffer such a breach of relationship. You see, his concern was not the physical torment that was coming. His grief was the reality that the sin of the world was going to be placed on him. Surely he has borne whose griefs? He has carried whose sorrows? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? His father. And afflicted. But he was pierced for whose transgressions? He was crushed for whose iniquities? And the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, sin, by virtue of being sin, means separation. And so the Father was going to put on his Son, who he told to be the Savior of the world, he was going to put on his Son, the Son of his love, the only Son that he has. He was going to put our sin on him. And in that moment, the face of the Father, which has always looked into the face of the Son, was going to be turned away. And for the very first time in ever, 
Jesus would know the loss of that relationship with the Father. And he did it because he loved the Father. And he was willing to do the Father's will, even though he did not want to go through this. You see, we don't understand what happens on the other side of the cross to make our redemption, our forgiveness, our salvation possible. It's called love. The love of the Son for the Father. So great that he was willing to experience a breach of love in the relationship with the Father and try as we may to capture the essence of that, the best we can do is something like this. of the son for the father being willing to suffer this breach of relationship so that he could do the will of the father and the will of the father is that you would be his and as difficult and as hard as it was for Jesus to go through this part of the ordeal the harder part actually belonged to the father his was much harder than his son's. Because the Bible indicates very clearly in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to what? And to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now you need to understand something. God is the one who devised this plan prior to creation. And now, once it got brought into creation, the reality is this, God set up a sacrificial system in the nation of Israel so that they could have a means of relationship with God that would deal with their sin, or at least cover it over until the ultimate sacrifice could be given. And so what God says is this, when there is an offense between me and you, you must bring an innocent, an animal, 
A perfect animal. Not flawed, not spotted, not, not lame. I want a perfect animal, a bullock, a, a ram, or a lamb. I want you to bring this into my presence at the tabernacle or at the temple before the priests. And the way you deal with your sin is this. You put your hand on the innocent. And what you're effectively doing is you are communicating the responsibility of what you did to that innocent animal. And then the person who brought the lamb or the ram is to take a knife and then walk over and slit the throat of the animal as it would convulse, bleed out, then the priest would take it and offer it as a sacrifice. God was the one who established this is the process to deal with sin, to at least cover it over. So why you see happening on the cross is this, the innocent one, the one who never sinned, the one who never thought an evil thought, the one who only did good, the one who was only pure love, loving the Father. He, in submission to the Father, was willing to have the sin of the world communicated to him. If you will, the Father communicated sin to his Son, the innocent one, and then the Father killed his own Son so that the sin that we commit could be dealt with. Oh my gosh. Do you understand the love that God has expressed toward us? Why? I have no idea other than he has chosen that. And he has chosen us. So we get a little bit of a glimpse of what this may have been like for the father to have gone through this. He gives us this story way back in the Older Testament that kind of alludes to what would be upcoming on the cross. And that story deals with a man by the name of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, in verse 2, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son. Now notice the wording. Your only son, just like Jesus was the Father's only son. The son whom you love, Jesus was the love of the Father. And Abraham, I want you to go into the land of Moriah, a mountain range upon which the city of Jerusalem sits, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so as the story goes, it goes like this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place for which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar off. And then Abraham said to the young men, I want you to stay here with the donkey and I and the boy or the young man will go over there and worship and come again to you. There's faith. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac, and he took his hand, in his hand fire and a knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, I see the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said to his son Isaac, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went on the way together. And as the story played out, he rose the knife over his son. By the way, Isaac willingly let his dad bind him up. The son trusted his dad. He loved his dad. He knew his dad loved him. And he knew that ultimately anything his dad would do would ultimately be for good. And so he raised the knife over his son. And just before he was going to plunge it into his heart and kill him as God had required, God said, wait a minute, Abraham, stop it. There's a ram in the thicket. Go get the ram, put it on the altar, kill it. And, and you can have your son back because I know you fear me. I know you love me. This all played out about 1,500 years before Christ on the cross, but it all prefigures it. 
because where this altar was built, the city of Jerusalem would later be built. And this was most likely the place upon which Golgotha, the place of the skull with this cross would stand is the very place where God was going to have Abraham offer up his son Isaac. The difference between that story and the story of, of the cross is that the father, God the father, actually did kill his son. For us. For you. For me. We try to capture little glimpses of what it must have been like for the Father to do this, to go there. And again, you know, Mel Gibson does his best to, to kind of give us a little illusion of the heartbreak of God at the, at the cross and what happened when he gives us this little picture of what transpired. The broken heart of the Father issues forth with a tear from heaven. I want to be careful right now to, to say that I'm trying to bring emotions to bear that I believe the scriptures give us warrant to. Whether these emotions are anthropomorphic, which is an expression of God trying to give us an understanding that we can relate to him through by giving us expressions that we're common with, I'm not exactly sure how far to take these emotions, but I do know that while God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God is not static and God is not stoic. I know that God can both have joy and he can have wrath and he can have love. So I, as we talk about these emotions like sorrow and, and, and anguish, I, I, I hope I'm not taking it too far, but I think God gives us a measure of warrant to appreciate his sacrifice for us what he was willing to do for us so that we would capture the beauty of what he was seeking to do. With that in mind, I, I want to use one last illustration to help us to truly appreciate, I think, the heart of the Father in giving up his Son for us. This is actually a, a, a short movie that was created in Czechoslovakia back in 2004. It is the relationship of a father for his son and a son for the father. They loved each other deeply. It was a 30-minute long short movie. But they took this concept of the love of the father and the sacrifice of the son to a level that I think helps us grasp a little bit of the love of God. Now this movie, if you want to track it down on YouTube, I want to encourage you to do so. Uh, not right now, but it's called Most, which is Czech for uh, Bridge. The father is a bridge master for a railroad over a canal. And as it plays out, 30 minutes long, I chose to cut it way down to bring together some of the pertinent elements and I backdropped it with the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Watch this. May God speak to your heart of his love for you.
how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds would mar the chosen one, bringing many sons to glory. This is a verse of scripture that we know so well. And yet do we. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In the word order in the original language, emphasis is always done by putting particular words in the front. And the way that this reads in the original language is with this word first. So loved the world the Father gave his only son. So loved. So loved he you. So loved he us. So when we look at the cross, we look at redemption, we look at salvation, we look at all the wonderful benefits that touch our lives, but one of the things we often overlook is the reality that this is the ultimate expression of God's love to us. Again, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you see the train? Did you see the people on the train? Did you see how they were indifferent to what was actually happening? That's most people. God gave his son's life. The son was willing to give his life and to breach that relationship of love. All for the father. All for us. And we go along our merry way. Thanks for for a ticket out of hell. Thanks for, 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 for giving me eternal life. And, and, and we just kind of go on and do our own thing. And no, it's the big deal. God gave me a gift. I'm going to take it. I'm going to live my own life. Is that really the response to perfect love? What is the true response that should elicit from a heart that has truly grasped the love of God? Jesus tells us. Jesus makes it very clear what is the proper response to the sacrifice of the Son, to the love of the Father, the sacrifice of the Father, to kill His Son on our behalf, to deal with our sin. This is the proper response according to Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. That, my friends, is the proper response to love. Anything less than this is not what it means to know God. Did you hear me? We live a lot of of life just being lukewarm about everything. And what did Jesus say he was going to do to lukewarm people? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Does that sound like something you want to have happen to you? But I got a gift. No, what you have is faith in eternal life, but not in Christ. What you have is faith and eternal security, but not in Jesus Christ. Because if you truly have Christ, you will have let go of your life, you will have fully embraced him, and he would be your life today. Let me ask you this question. Do you love God? Let me ask you a question. Do you love God? Does God love you? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ more than your spouse? For some of us, that's easy. Do you love Jesus Christ more than you love your child? You see, this is where it gets real. Do you love Jesus Christ more than you love your grandchild? 
Would he want that from me? Well, let me ask you. All, 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 all. What do you think? What does it mean to love God? It means he's first, no matter what, over every other relationship in your life, including yourself. Too many people have religion and a false assurance. But you don't have Christ, whom to have is life eternal. This is what it means to know him. This is what it means to, to have him as your own. If you're just going through life, doing your own thing, living your own plans, doing as you please, you are not saved. Because perfect love has expressed itself in the cross. And if you can just walk by, say thank you, and go on with your life, you don't get it. He gave himself for us that we would give ourselves to him. That's what it means to know him. That's what it means to know him. But I believe, do you really? Last week, I gave a quote from um, a gentleman who said this, and I believe it more now than ever. He said that if if you can claim to have eternal life through the grace of God, or you cannot claim to have eternal life through the grace of God unless you have given up all to follow him. That's true. Apart from that, you got religion. Apart from that, You don't have Christ. May he impress his love on you. May you be smitten that God would think that of you so much that he would require his son to be the savior. That the son out of love for the father would be willing to have a breach in relationship and be willing to die as the sin sacrifice for our sins. That the father would be willing to kill his son for us. If that doesn't move your heart to give up your life to him, nothing ever will. And nothing short of that is eternal life. Let's pray. Who are we, O God? Who are we to even capture a glance of the eternal? And yet you have chosen to sacrifice your son's life, to bring us into relationship. Lord God, help us not to walk by the cross and just say, that's cool. Help us to fall on our knees before the cross and say, if you did this for me, how can I do any less than give my life to you? Father, there's too many today who live lukewarm lives. And they are going to stand before Christ one day and they are going to hear him say, I never even knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. It was all about your life and how you could use me to get ahead. Oh God, bring us to the end of ourselves in this moment. May we freely give our lives to Christ. Whom to know is life eternal. In this moment, Father, I want to encourage the Holy Spirit to
to be tugging on hearts, not letting people come up with excuses about why they're going to hold on to their lives. Those are lies from the devil. Don't let them grab onto any of those. May they honestly, full face, look at the cross and give up their lives, I pray, to the one who gave his all for them. Oh God, who are we but wretches? And yet you cast your love upon us. In the name of Jesus, the Savior, thank you, Father, I pray. And the people of God said, amen. God bless you.